Recidivism is a huge problem today. Uh, recidivism, that is the tendency of criminal offenders to re-offend and then go back to jail. Uh, that's what it means, recidivism. They're returning back to their sins, their problems. Uh, perhaps even some of you here, and I know that some of you here, uh, know folks like this, folks who commit crimes, who do the time, and for whatever reason, when they get out, they go and commit the same crimes, breaking the same laws, and then they land up back in the same jail. One study reports that of the 7 million Americans who were incarcerated or on probation or on parole in 2010, more than 4 in 10 can be expected to return to prison within 3 years. 4 in 10 return to prison in 3 years. Of course, if you know you have your own problems and have committed your own sins, You know, the problem here is not ultimately about what sin we return to. The problem is that our hearts continue to desire sin. We know that we have a heart given over to sin. That is recidivism. We all wrestle with recidivism, whether or not we are in jail or whether or not we are free. And we desire to return to our sin. And some of us even know this, that we return to it instantaneously. We might repent in one second and then return back to our sin the very next. Well, friends, today in Exodus chapter 32, in Exodus chapter 32, which can be found on page 72 if you're using the black church Bibles there, uh, we see a shocking recidivism by the people of Israel. And this chapter covers the most monumental sin between Adam and Eve's sin against God in the garden And then the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So what is perhaps the most monumental sin between those two sins? Adam and Eve's rejection of Jesus and then the crucifixion of the Son of God. Uh, Here we see Israel turning away from God to make for themselves an idol, the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. From our passage today, big main point if you're taking notes here, we learn that if anyone must be saved... They must throw themselves at the mercy of God. We learn that if anyone must be saved, they must throw themselves at the mercy of God. Uh, now, typically what I do in a sermon is I give you, uh, you know, points to write down. And then even there, there's sub points. I don't really have points today. Uh, so we're just going to walk through the passage a little bit different, keeping that main point in view. If anyone must be saved, we must throw ourselves at the mercy of God. And then we're just going to walk through this passage here drawing out, pulling out some main themes and applying it uh, as appropriate here. The book of Exodus, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, is all about God forming for himself a holy people. Just as he is holy, so he's forming himself a holy people, holy to his glory. And in chapters 1 to 18 in the book of Exodus, God here is seen to deliver his people out of slavery to Egypt. And then in chapters 19 to 40, God teaches his holy people how to live holy in holy ways because they don't know they're sinful. And so as he's forming them, he's sort of helping them along uh, in 19 to 40, giving them laws. So you got the Ten Commandments, and you got the Book of the Covenant, that really laws that sort of explicate or further on uh, the moral nature of the Ten Commandments. And then you have also uh, the laws concerning about how he is to be worshipped as God is drawing near to his people. The holy God is drawing near to his unholy people. And here he lets them know, how is it that we are to dwell together? Because I'm going to set my love upon you, so this is what you can do. And he tells them to build a tabernacle, which is basically a a portable tent designed for worship. Well, as God is giving his people the Ten Commandments and the laws, as God is preparing his unholy people to meet a holy king, how they are to have uh, fellowship with the Holy God. All that's taking place up on Mount Sinai, if you recall. They're out, the, the, out Mount Sinai where God reveals himself to Moses. But while the Holy Lord reveals himself to Moses, giving Moses his presence, inviting Moses up into his presence, and even some of the leaders, even as he, as he is promising and pledging his presence to go with them into the land of promise, even as he is preparing them for his drawing near amongst them, The people are getting a little impatient. 
the people are getting a little bit impatient. In fact, more than a little bit impatient. Look at 32 verses 1 to 6, and we'll start working through our passage here. I'll go ahead and read this section. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You know, we have to, as we read this, we have to ask, where exactly is Israel's heart in all of this? I mean, they have God on the clock, so to speak. I mean, is deliverance out of 400 years of slavery not enough? Is the presence of God not enough to keep their hearts towards them? Is sustenance in the desert not enough? You think about the Abrahamic promises that God and his sovereignty brought to Abraham and then to all of his descendants and to the Israelites, them being their own nation, going into their own land, that they would be a blessing to the world. Are those things not enough? And what about everything that they had observed? Just a few chapters a little bit earlier. I mean, just a few weeks earlier, in fact, where, where they observed the glory cloud of God come down upon Mount Sinai in fire, in cloud, crazy atmospheric sounds, the mountain trembling, it says there in chapter 19. And then God meets with Moses. He meets with the other leaders. I mean, is this not enough? Well, apparently not, because what ruffles their feathers is Moses' delay there in 32.1. Of course, the issue is not just that Moses is keeping them waiting. It is that God is keeping them waiting. They have God on the clock, right? They saw what God was doing. They heard. And in fact, they even said, Moses, you speak to God on our behalf, lest we die. In fear, they say that. They, they know what's going on. God comes down. Moses, he's making return trips. He comes down and then he goes back up. And, and, and the people know. He delivers God's word to them. And then God calls him to return back up. So they saw, they knew, they heard. God's schedule, it appears, is too slow for theirs. I mean, they're so eager to become a kingdom, so eager to get into their own land, that they are willing to go on ahead without God. And so in their dissatisfaction, they gather around Aaron, who is Moses' brother-in-law, and, he, and they make demands, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has been made of him. We don't know where he's gone. And so the, what they're asking right here, the thought is that Israel is reverting to what they had known in Egypt. Egypt the Egyptians were people who worshipped many gods. And so Israel here is wanting physical idols to represent God. Physical idols to represent the Lord. I mean, Aaron there, he declares a feast day to the Lord as they're standing right before the calf. And just a few chapters earlier, we know that God had just given the Israelites the Ten Commandments by his mouth, right? And here again, we see where Israel's heart is. We see their waywardness here. This is how the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus chapter 20. You can go ahead and flip back there. Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord, your God. Right? We, we just saw in, in 1 to 18, God, the king of the universe, move against the king of Egypt. As the king of Egypt was setting himself against the king of the universe. You know, he doesn't care about who the Lord is. He says, he says I don't need to listen to this God of yours, Moses. And so he continues to enslave the people of Israel. Really, what you see there is this battle of divinity of the so-called divine king of egypt against the only divine king that is the lord this is ultimately a spiritual battle here so when the lord says i am the lord he's saying i am the only one 
I am the Lord your God, and therefore, is the implication, you shall have no other gods before me, because there are none that exist. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. And you know what they say after God gives them the Ten Commandments and then the Book of, the book of uh, uh, Commands there? They say in 24, 3, and 8, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I mean, they've just been delivered out of Egypt, and here you have this proclamation. And, and we want to sing with them. Yes, praise God for their desired obedience. All the words that the Lord had spoken, we will do. But despite everything that they had experienced, despite everything that they had known in relation to their deliverance, God working miracles for them, God delivering them, God destroying the Egyptians for them, God granting them divine sustenance from heaven for them, God drawing near for them. We've got to ask, like, who in the world would do such a thing? One moment they experience the glories of God, and the next down there at the bottom of the mountain, they are casting God aside, worshiping a golden calf, breaking the Ten Commandments, despising Moses, and rejecting God. When I read Exodus chapter 32, I can't help but think, you know, these people are sinners. Maybe even we think these people are morons. Like, how can they go and go on and do this thing, uh, given what's been happening in, in the matter of 40 days? But and it's tempting to think that we are so far from their situation. So far from their sin. Right. But the reality is we find ourselves in this story. So we should not be identifying with God. We should be identifying with the Israelites. We find ourselves in the story. You know, maybe we like the idea of God's promises, right? I mean, do you guys like the idea of the promises of God? All the stuff that he promises to his people. Uh, but yet we know that we do not like the road that God has laid down for us to get there, to lay hold of the promises of God. Right? We like the promises. We just don't like the way that God tells us we're going to get there. So think about it this way. You know, do you like heaven, the idea of heaven? Maybe you like heaven, but you don't like how God is teaching you to love him supremely now. I mean, heaven, it's not just a place. I mean, there's one song, uh, frankly, a ridiculous song that talks about how heaven is where you get to throw on the football with your friends. Uh, and I had sung that song in a church before. Um, heaven in the Bible is the place where you go before God for eternal worship of the one supreme being that is Yahweh, the Lord. And there we love him supremely into eternity. Well, well, naturally, I mean, if God wants us to get there, then he's teaching us how to get there. He's preparing us for what we're going to do then. So we might say, yeah, we like heaven, but you know what? We just don't like how God is teaching us to love him supremely now. Exposing all of the things that fail us, whether it be relationships we're idolizing relationships. Or maybe he's exposing to you how, you know, you shouldn't put your money or shouldn't put your hope in your money, your retirement fund, or even your job, even your very own families. He's teaching you to love them supremely now to prepare you for the great love that you will experience then. Or, or maybe you just don't particularly like the timing of his tests. You know, you frankly find it inconvenient that the Lord would test you on this particular thing right here, right now. It's not suitable to, to my lifestyle, what I want for my life. Or maybe you like Jesus, right? I mean, there's probably a lot of moralists here. I mean, even in some of the Asian cultures, the reason why some people say Christianity blends so well with some Asian cultures is because Asians in general, like uh, in Confucian, with a Confucian background, they like this idea of morality, what you're going to do with your neighbor, and that's how the world goes around here. So maybe you like this Jesus, who seems to be the epitome of morality. But you don't particularly like that he calls you to suffer for his name. You don't particularly like that he actually calls you to choose him, even if that means letting go of your family who might hate him. Perhaps you like the idea of God's promises, but you don't really care for the God of the promises. Maybe you like the God, maybe you like God changing you into a moral person. 
you know, you'll take doing good in front of the eyes of man or your neighbors, those people you so desperately want to impress, but you don't care much to love and be in awe with the God of holiness, of purity, of righteousness. You know, when these trials come up, it exposes our hearts, revealing to us what we really want. You'd rather pass on the whole Jesus thing in order to get to the benefits of heaven or whatever your ideas of morality are, whatever your ideas of self-righteousness are or the good life or comfort. In these situations, God is your means to your own end. Your means to your own end. And frankly, we've seen people come and we've seen people go who think that Jesus is the means towards a better life. They think just generally, actually wrongly, that yeah, you know, if we follow Jesus, we'll get a better job. Or, or Jesus is going to provide us, you know, a good family, but then they become Christians, or they claim to be Christians, and then their family begins to turn on them. They become Christians, and then they realize, or they become so-called Christians, and then they realize that, oh, actually, following Jesus means making hard choices, and maybe giving up certain immoral things and immoral jobs. And then so they abandon Christ. Apparently, God is an insufficient means to get to the ultimate end, according to them. I think that's what the Israelites are doing here. The land is looking really nice after 400 years of slavery. The supposed benefits of deliverance were looking really nice, given that uh, Egypt and Pharaoh wanted to kill all those baby boys and commit a slow genocide against them. But really, as they reach out for these things, they reject the very thing that God desires for them in the midst of all of those so-called benefits. That's to have a restored relationship with God, their very own creator. This is why they are tired of God. They're tired of their God-given leader, Moses. And so they go to Aaron looking for the next best thing. And speaking of Aaron, you know, we hope that Aaron would stand for something because God had used him mightily, if you remember, to, to deliver the judgments upon Egypt. He was Moses' spokesperson. And we know, too, that, that God had, a very, had very crucial plans for Aaron, that he would lead the people of Israel, if you remember from last week, lead the people of Israel before God's very presence. He was a representative. He was supposed to have, you know, even, even the very stuff that he wore resembled, was to, to, uh, go, he was to go before God on Israel's behalf. And so even the stuff he wore was to represent the fact that he's going before God on behalf of all the people. He's supposed to have these two stones with the tr names of the tribes of Israel on them. So when he goes into the most holy place before the presence of God with the blood of the atonement, he goes on behalf of the people. But here the people go to him and he leads them away from the presence of God. He, in fact, leads them into the judgment of God. I mean, how ironic that on the mountain, God is revealing his plans to Moses about Aaron, that he would intercede for them. But here he brings them away. He leads them astray. What does he say? The people go to him. They say, make off, uh, make uh, gods who will go before us. And what does Aaron say? He, he, you know, we wish he would have said so many things. We wish he would have said, you know, at the very least, just wait one moment. We certainly know that he is not going to say, this is what the Lord had said, even though he was Moses' spokesperson. But what does he say? He says, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. I mean, while God had descended on the mountain, laying out for Moses his plans for the sanctuary, there is Aaron designing his own plans. You remember that God wanted Moses to gather the gold that God had given the Israelites in Egypt to build a sanctuary for him, to resemble his holiness in the presence of God. But what's Aaron doing? Aaron's off gathering his own so-called gold. He's using the God-given gold to build them an idol so they can give it glory. The sanctuary was supposed to speak of the glory of God, but here Aaron is wanting to give this idol glory. You look there at verses 3 and 4 again. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. 
you look there, if it continues, you see the climax of such sin, this great, grand proclamation it's supposed to be. He says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And with Aaron leading them, the people make an idol. They attribute deliverance to it. Aaron then builds an, uh, an altar before it, as if this is the thing that they need to be reconciled to. Aaron then goes on and declares a feast day in honor of it. And then he calls for sacrifices to be given to this cow, the statue of a cow. Such sins, friends, cannot be explained away. I mean, some of you might have the gut reaction. You know, maybe you're entering into this, you know, exploring Christianity. You may want to explain away some of these sins. You know, this is the first time they're doing this for all you know. Uh, maybe you think, yeah, naturally I would have done the same thing because Moses is gone. We need to figure out, find a substitute. Or maybe even say, yeah, they, they want to design, they want to build a calf to stand in the place of God. At least they have their eyes fixed on God. But friends, if you look there at verse 8, God is not having any of it. Look what he says. He says there in verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. He sees it as worship here. God sees, any, uh, sees this representation that people have built as worship. They have sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God is not having any of it. He is not in this calf. You know, as we seek to take what is here, I mean, this is thousands of years ago. We seek to take what is here and apply it to our present day situation. Uh, friends, how is your patience going? How's your patience in the Christian life going? And I do not mean your ability to endure the Christian life under God. That's not what I mean. I do not mean your ability to endure the Christian life under God. I mean patience that is able to surrender every aspect of life to the Lord, knowing and trusting in God's goodness towards you, even in the midst of trials, His kindness towards you even in the midst of trials his wisdom towards you even in the midst of trials his knowledge his power his zeal his purifying love for his people that kind of patience that kind of patience that entrusts yourself to god no matter where he leads us it's the patience and trust that maybe you exercised when you wanted to do something when you were a kid or, or a teenager maybe that's you right now you want it's patience and trust that you are needing to exercise when you want to do something and your parents or your grandparents or your, uh, the person watching over you says, you know, I'm sorry, but no, you cannot do that. And you're just going to have to trust me that it is not for your good. Personally, uh, you know, I can speak for myself and there are many times in which I doubted the wisdom and the knowledge of my parents. Now, certainly they are not all knowing. They're not all wise and they're not all powerful. But in the moment, you know, I'm four, I've lived 14 years of life. I understand what's going on in my situation. And then my parents, you know, collectively, maybe at the time they lived 60 years of life at the time collectively, or, or even uh, uh, let's just say 100 years of life collectively. And me, the 14-year-old, rolls up and just complaining and whining about their wisdom and giving me and telling me, giving me boundaries. Telling me, no, really, you just got to trust me. It's good to live in these particular boundaries. Like I remember, you know, my, my parents would uh, come up to me, you know, when I was uh, smoking a lot. Uh, they'd come up, which is uh, a minor sin in relation to some of the other sins that I was committing. But nevertheless, it was a sin. But to give you a... a I don't know, a PG or a PG-13 example. You know, my mom would lovingly come up to me and say, Jeremy, you smell like a forest fire. <laughs> and she would talk to me about, you know, addiction and things like this and how I should be trusting in Jesus Christ. Well, that, I think, was her intent in, in uh, bringing up some of these issues. But I just wrote her off. What does she know about these things? What does my father know about these things even though his mother passed away from lung cancer? I mean, and that's just a physical thing. I mean, you, some of you guys know, if you're wrestling with very real addictions, you know that there's a spiritual problem, even an addiction to cigarettes. Uh, and it shows that we are trusting in something else other than God who satisfies. Anyways, that's like us. You know, we doubt God. God gives us the boundaries in which we are to live. And here we go, complaining like a little infant, as if we had greater knowledge, greater wisdom. 
and a greater ability to lead our own selves to the way that God, to where God wants us to be. Such sins cannot be explained away. Our own sins cannot be explained away. Our impatience, we, we're just like the Israelites. We see that it leads us away to find a substitute, particularly with things that we think are good, but we are using them to our own end, not the end of glorifying God. Unfortunately, Israel sinned here. They break the covenant that God had made with them. They break the covenant that God had made with them. Let's see now how God responds in 7 to 14. The narrative cuts back to the Lord and Moses back up on Mount Sinai. So all of a sudden we are drawn up to Mount Sinai there. In verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God is definitely not pleased here. Even the language used communicates a distance. Your people that you have brought up, God speaks as if they are fundamentally not his people, but Moses' people. And if you remember, there was Aaron's pronouncement. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, in verse 8, the Lord gives his own pronouncement there. Look there, I'll read that once again. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded. That they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out, out of the land of Egypt. You see that there, the pronouncement here, that God himself says, They have turned aside. They have made for themselves a golden calf. They have worshipped it. They have sacrificed to it. And then, in effort to declare it honor, they pronounce, These are your gods. They give the glory of God away. To this calf. You know, the Bible describes this turning away from God, this idolatry is nothing less than adultery against God, this great God. It is adultery, friends. Exodus 32 makes a huge deal about this. And later on, we'll see that. Uh, well, actually, go ahead and look there now. 32, 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? This great sin that's mentioned here is referred to again in verse 30. Uh, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And then 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. You know where else this language of great sin is used? It's consistently used for idolatry. And we know that idolatry, you can look at Ezekiel chapter 16, for example, is also phrased in the language of adultery. Friends, we've seen a little bit of a little bit of their uh, adulterous urge already. If you guys remember, just days after they had left Egypt, days after God had rescued them, they want to go back to slavery under Egypt because they have meat there, they have vegetables there. But in God, and also God using Moses uh, to lead them in their delay. In the moment of their waiting, their adulterous urge here is exposed for what it is. It is absolutely ravenous. And it gives, full, it gives birth to full-blown adultery. I mean, uh, it is as crazy, think about this, it is as crazy as committing adultery against your wife because she's taking so long to turn in your marriage certificate that you guys just signed. That's what's going on here. God makes a covenant with Israel. Down at the mountain just days later, Israel is abandoning the certificate they are abandoning the covenant or more like a prisoner getting out of jail and then the day of committing the very same crime he went in for verse 10 this leads to god's judgment look there let me alone god says that my wrath may burn hot against them and i may consume them in order that i may make a great nation out of you so here we're going to draw out a little theme here uh, this theme arises uh, it's arisen in the past but here it's clear about moses the mediator from here until the end of the chapter, the focus is very much on Moses, as we're going to see this, and God teaching him and growing him, giving him the character required to be the leader of the people, the covenant mediator. I mean, just keep that in the back of your mind as we walk through this passage here. Look there, verses 11 to 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He then asks at the end of verse 12 there, turn from, turn from your burning anger and relent from disaster against your people. And then in 14 it says there, and the Lord relented. God sees what's going down. Moses 
God declares that he will judge his people. Moses then implores of the Lord. He asks him to turn, and then in fourteen he relents from his anger. Now let's let's pause right there. Now some of you guys visiting, this passage might seem a little off-putting. The Lord seems like he's having a little temper tantrum up there. This is like a parent depending on his or her own child to clean up after their vomit after yet another night of drunkenness. It's like it's like a parent asking their children to cover for his adulterous actions to the mom because he can't get his stuff straight. And then we naturally think of this, if this depends on mere man, if God's uh, peace and compassion depends on mere man, we all should be asking if it's worth following God at all, right? I mean, who wants a God like this when it seems that a man is more compassionate than he is? Friends, if that is you and you've wondered these questions, I'm so glad you're here today so we can solve this all right here. We can clear it up right here, right now. God is not having a temper tantrum. God is a God of steadfast love and compassion, as we're going to see very clearly next week. And he is a holy and righteous God. And Moses is certainly not more compassionate than God. I mean, you guys remember, and if you don't, let me just give you guys a recap here, whose plan it was to rescue the people in the first place. It was God's plan. And so in Exodus chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, we hear that God, we see God hearing the cries of his people. We remember, we see there God remembering the covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants. We see God seeing the suffering of his people. We know that God knows their situation. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, it says, And God came down. Not only that, though, but when God laid out his rescue plan to Moses, when God brought Moses into his situation room, so to speak, and gave him a 360 view of what exactly was going to happen in all the grandiose terms of miracles and mighty works and destruction of those who had enslaved them, and how he was going to use Moses to do that. You guys know what Moses said? He says, I know that the Egyptians have enslaved my people. I know the king of Egypt has committed himself to our genocide, but who am I to lead these people into deliverance? Who am I to speak to the king of Egypt? They're not going to believe me. And you know what? My tongue is not so eloquent. Friends, you see here that as God is working to deliver his people, Moses is making it all about himself. He can barely get himself to back God's deliverance as opposed to participate in it. And so he objects, thoroughly objects three times to the call of the great king. Moses is not more compassionate about God. I mean, earlier in Exodus... He is selfish. He lacks trust in God. He doubts the power of God. And if he continues in this path, it will be all at the expense of the people's suffering, their death, their genocide. Now, when we fast forward to Exodus chapter 32, thank God we see a much more godly Moses. Remember, this is part of this is about Moses becoming the covenant mediator here. He has been empowered by God. He has witnessed God's mighty deeds. He knows of God's forgiveness because he too has sinned against God. And he finds himself standing in the presence of God up on Mount Sinai. Once again in the situation room, not resisting at all this great God's plan. But what is he doing? If he's not resisting, what is he doing here in Exodus chapter 32? He is imploring this great God on behalf of the people suffering because of their sin. To Moses, it is not about Moses anymore. And you know how we can tell that it's not about Moses anymore? Because to Moses, it is all about God and the welfare of God's people. Just look at 11 to 13 once again. Just skim that there. God, based on the fact that you are a compassionate God and you are compassionate to your elect. That's reason number one. He's imploring God. That's election. Based on the glory of your name, that's reason number two, verse 12. And based on your promises that you have given to your people, verse 13, reason number three, he says, have mercy on them. Compassion upon those who deserve your just condemnation. God, based on your divine election, based on your plan to display your glory to the world, and based on your promises and faithfulness, do not destroy them. What an evolution for Moses, isn't it? Before Moses pleaded his own weakness, 
to get out of participating in God's deliverance. But here, Moses pleads God's purposes, God's compassion, in order to see God's deliverance. Moses is in the best place he can be, isn't he? Not standing in the way of salvation of sinners, but pleading the salvation of sinners because salvation belongs to the Lord. He is loving the things that God himself loves and for the right reasons. It makes us grateful for Moses as a mediator, doesn't it? We know that Moses here points forward to Jesus ultimately. It should make us grateful for Jesus Christ who stands before God on behalf of his people. That is the church. That is you, Christian. I mean, thank God Jesus never stood in the way of God's deliverance plan. Thank God that Jesus Christ never delayed the plan of God to save sinners. But from the beginning, Christ loved the things that God loved. For the joy that was set before him, he paid for the sins of God's people. And he did it for the fame of God's name. And he did it to ensure the promises of God were brought to fruition. This was, in fact, why he was nailed to the cross And as he was nailed to the cross, he was able to implore God, friends, on your behalf, forgive them, for they know not what they do in crucifying the Son of God. The fact that God's mediator is pleading God's own person and purposes and plan to bring about God's pardon shows us that sinners are at the mercy of God. You see, you have God's mediator up on Mount Sinai pleading with God according to his own purposes, his own plan, his own character to see his plan of salvation brought to fruition so that the people would be pardoned. You see, friends, that we are at the mercy of God. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, friends, you are at the mercy of God. Some of you hear that, you might react negatively there, thinking that God is like the Incredible Hulk, ready to Hulk smash anything that stands in his way. You never know if he's going to go against you or if he is for you. You never know what you're going to get. And so you think naturally that we are at the hands of a dictator. But that is not what is meant when I say that sinners are at the mercy of God. Friends, to be at the mercy of God simply means that we need God's mercy to be saved. His mercy means that he does not give us what we deserve. And according to the Bible, what we deserve is his punishment and his sin, it's, it's death because of our sin. It's to bear the wrath because of those sins. And we know that from Adam and Eve, sin against, against God from the very beginning. And ever since that sin, man has been born into sin. And not only that, though, but we transgress God's rule freely. We desire to. And so, as Oscar read for us earlier, we are children of wrath. That is, that is what we are to inherit. So, friends, we are at the mercy of God because of our rebellion against God. We have thrown off our king, so to speak, and desire to be kings unto ourselves. We all, like Israelites, like the Israelites have rebelled against our creator and maker, and there is nothing we can do to get us acquitted. There is no amount of community service that will clear us. And so we depend on God to be merciful. That's what it means to be at the mercy of God. It does not mean that we take a chance on God to be merciful, but that we need his mercy to be saved. But but friends, get this. If you hear that we are at the mercy of God and react negatively, thinking like, oh, I'm supposed to take a chance that God will be merciful... Friends, no, being at the mercy of God not only means that we need his mercy to be saved, but the fact that sinners are at the mercy of God means that we can depend on the mercy of God because he is merciful. And so, friends, you only need to plead his mercy to be saved. In Jesus Christ, the mercy of God is given as he lives a perfect life and dies the death that we should have bearing the wrath that we deserved. And so as he takes our sin upon himself and the wrath that we deserve, so God is able to look at all those who repent of their sins and believe on him with mercy, not giving them what they deserve. And so the gates of salvation are opened wide. Of course, to lay hold of the Father's mercy, God calls you to own your sin and the judgment that was to follow. 
That's what we see here, that there is, in fact, sin against God and that God must judge sin. But friends, this passage calls us to repent of your sins and believe and you will be saved in dependence upon the mercy of God. So listen to this, friends. Listen to these verses that speak of the mercy of God and so plead the mercy of God in your guilt. Romans 10, 13, it says there that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not might be saved. It is will be saved. Listen to this. First John 1, 19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then uh, if you turn over to Psalm verse 40, turn over to Psalm verse 40. I want you guys to look at this verse. It truly is an amazing verse that speaks of the, the wonderful, beautiful character of God. Psalm chapter 40, verse 11. Remember, we're looking at the mercy of God, not because I want you to get, take a chance on the mercy of God, but to know without a, without a shadow of doubt that you will receive mercy if you call upon the Lord. Listen to Psalm 40, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. It almost sounds as if the mercy of God is just waiting to bust out of the cage to not give people what they deserve. You will not restrain it. I mean, what are the, what are the types of things that you restrain? If our sin is ravenous, God's mercy is ravenous, all the more you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. That's the kind of God that says, come to me, eat and drink without money, and I will save you, forgive you your sins. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We are at the mercy of God. Thank God, because he is a God of mercy. Now, some of us here might be wondering, well, actually, don't verses 11 to 13 just confirm the fact that he is fickle? I mean, it seems there that he relents. The Lord changes his mind. Friends, I need to explain here what it means here when it says that God changes his mind, because we know that in the book of Numbers 23, 19, it says uh, that God is not like man, that he should change his mind, as in. Uh, you know, he is not like man. Has he said, this is what, what it goes on to read, has he said and will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So how exactly do we reconcile Numbers twenty three nineteen to this passage here in Exodus where it says that God relented or some of your versions might say he uh, repented or something like that? Well, this phrase, God changed his mind or he relented is used some 40 times in the Bible. And it refers to God laying out an intended action and then choosing a different course of action. So then we got to say, okay, so how exactly does this work? You know, is this consistent with the character of God? Well, the answer is, friends, yes, he is consistent with his own character. Because he himself has laid down the rules and he himself has said, friends, if you persist in sin, I will judge you. So Israel sins. He announces, I will judge you. But we also know, too, that he has said, according to his grace, if you turn from your sin, then I will move to you in salvation and I will not judge you eternally. And that's all according to his promises. He himself has said, if this is what happens, then I will judge you. But if this is what you do, then this is what I will not do. In fact, this is what I will do. I'll move to, in salvation towards you. And we see that time and time again in the Old Testament. That's what's going on here, friends. He says, if you will rep repent, then I will not judge you. When it says that God relents or changes his mind, it speaks of God working according to what he has already determined. Judgment for those who persist in sin and forgiveness for those who throw themselves at God's mercy. And he does what he promises. That's why in Numbers 23, 19, it says there, God is not like man that he should change his mind, as in he's not fickle. He's not saying, oh, I love you guys, but no, actually I don't. Oh, I love you guys, but no, I actually don't. He's saying, no, I love you guys, and if you repent, I save you. And if you don't, then there is judgment for you. This is why Numbers 23, 19 goes on to say, speak about what he has said and promised. He has said, and will he not do it? The answer is, of course he will. Or has he not spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Of course he's going to fulfill it, even if that is judgment, and even if that is salvation. Okay, back to the narrative here. 
Now that Moses has implored God and God has relented, now let's see what happens there in 15 to 18. Now, now keep in mind here that Moses has not seen the actual people's sin. This takes place all on the mountain. So we're going to see this movement towards Moses going down, uh, going down the mountain to experience what's going on there. 15 to 18. I'll give you a summary here. Just skim along there. Moses turns and he heads down the mountain with the Ten Commandments in hand. Remember, he had given them the Ten Commandments orally, not uh, physically. Verse 16 says the tablets were the word of God written by the finger of God. And you see the symbolism there? The Ten Commandments, while these were the laws in and of themselves, they stood as a symbol of God's covenant with his holy people. Israel was his treasured possession to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. His laws were to help them live that out. And so Moses, he's walking down the mountain, and eventually he's met up with a man named Joshua. Uh, And what they must have heard and saw, we imagine, must have been a shock to the senses. And even more jarring to the spirit. And some of you guys might have experienced this. You know, if you're, let's say you're traveling in India. The first time, well, the only time I went to India, you know, you hop off the plane and you hear, you're overwhelmed with sounds. And a lot of those sounds are actually temple calls of prayer. And you're blasted with these things just from everywhere. And this is kind of what's going on. As they descend to be amongst God's people... They hear the sound and a celebration and prayers and singing and rejoicing. But not of a worship of God, but the worship of idolatry. They're worshiping the golden calf. I mean, imagine Moses standing there with the Ten Commandments in hand. Verse 19 says that Moses' anger burned hot. It's exactly the way that God reacted there. And what does he do? It says that he throws the tablets on the ground. He breaks them at the foot of the mountain with holy jealousy. Because the Hebrews had shattered the covenant with Yahweh, Moses smashes the tablets of the covenant right before their eyes. Next, let's look and see what he does to the idol. Verse 20, once again, acting in holy jealousy, Moses annihilates it. He commits it to total destruction. And this is only the appropriate response. Look there in, or you don't have to turn there, but 23, 24 in Exodus. And this is what God says, when I bring you into the land, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Verse 20 says, he took the calf, he burned it, and then it says he ground it to powder. That's devoted to total destruction here. Just fulfilling the commands of God. He doesn't need to go into the land to devote these gods to total destruction. No, he knows that this is not the worship of God. And then in making the Israelites drink it, it was sort of a judgment upon the Israelites for their adulterous idolatry. That's a practice that seems to be affirmed in the book of Numbers chapter 5. And again, Moses, he understands their waywardness. Continuing to act in holy jealousy, not only does he break the Ten Commandments as a symbol, not only does he destroy this idol, but then he confronts Aaron in verses 21 to 24. Aaron, here's the number two guy, and again you see the irony. The one who was supposed to be the mediator between the people and God, here he's leading the people into such a great sin in verse 21. Aaron says there in verse 22, I'll go ahead and look there. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. The colossal, colossal abdication of responsibility here. You know the people. They are set on evil. They are the ones who said, make us gods. They didn't know what happened to you. His response here sounds like Adam and Eve's. Blame shifting all around, not taking responsibility. He says, hey, give me the gold. I'm going to throw it into the fire. And then he says, out came this calf. It's so passive. But we know actually that in the previous verse there, he's the one who's taking the engraving tool to it. He is the one who is making the molten calf. It is, in fact, his responsibility. You know, friends, some have summarized manhood as um, rejecting passivity. Write this down. If you're a man, you want to know what manhood is. Summarize this. I think it'll be helpful. Uh, rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, leading courageously, seeking a greater reward in Christ. I'll repeat that here. Reject, rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, leading courageously, seeking a greater reward in Christ. Aaron here fails miserably. 
He embraces passivity. He denies responsibility. The people, you know them. They said to me, so I said, eh, why not? Yeah. He fails to lead courageously because it seems he seeks his own comfort. And that's the reward he wants. They gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. You can't help but hear the fall in Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Where Adam embraced passivity, pawned off responsibility. God moves to judge him. And he says, the woman you gave me, she did this. Of course, Aaron's comment is a straight up lie once again. Verse 4 of 32, he received the gold, he fashioned it and made the molten calf. Continuing once again to look at Moses' role as mediator, acting in holy jealousy after burning with holy anger, after breaking the Ten Commandments and then confronting Aaron, he then carries out the judgment on the people. And those who refuse to choose God's side are killed. In 32.26, Moses stands in front of the people and he issues a call to repentance. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. The Levites... They draw near to Moses. And that day, it says there in verse 28, it says that 3,000 people fell. Friends, do you even see here in this judgment, do you see the mercy of God? God would have been just to judge them right then and there. But he didn't. God gave them yet another chance to repent and turn their hearts to him. Moses stands and gives the proclamation and the call to repentance. Turn, all who are with me on the Lord's side, come to me. All who are with the Lord, who trust in the Lord, and depend upon the mercy of God. He gives them yet another opportunity to know restoration with God. Christian, what sins do you have in your heart that you might be tempted to write off, just like the Israelites were? You know, maybe you say, I sin because of my personality. Or, hey, my sin, it's not a big deal. You know what? Because I can pull up my own bootstraps. All I have to do is put more guardrails in place, more filters on your phone, and hey, you know, it's good. Well, friends, in some ways, that can be writing off your sin. It's a false repentance, possibly, that actually does not recognize sin before God. Might recognize sin before your own selfish standards, might recognize sin before the community standards, but not a sin that not a repentance that recognizes it before God. What Moses calls for here is that the Israelites see their sin before God and against God. If you think about it here, think about the nature of sin. What does establishing your own throne against God's throne deserve from the one and only true God? What is the cost of sinning against your maker in this way? It says in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. Friends, let me implore you to not write off your sin, but search your heart so that you might feel the offense against God and then seek his mercy. And search, friends, not to sinfully dwell on sins as if God were not forgiving, as if you might not receive mercy from God, but to see once again how merciful God really is. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Here you see the psalmist just, just very happy to stand before God, inviting God to search him. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. Friends, are you good at searching your heart to know the offense of God, to then move then to plead the mercy of God, that he would continue to not give you what you deserve, but in grace give you everything that is his in Jesus Christ? Because that's what he promises, friend. If you can stand bare before God, bearing your whole entire soul and all of the darkness, which he already knows exists, and say, search me, O God. Know my heart. Not so that we might go outside and punish ourselves as if that somehow saves ourselves or earns salvation. He says, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Once again, this is a psalmist who knows the other Psalms. Psalm 40, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. What a wonderful call to plead God's mercy for our sins. That is the God we worship. You guys, if you guys know, if you've been here long enough, you know, you know we, sometimes we have prayers of praise. Sometimes we have prayers of confession. 
And at first, some people who come in, they're like, they think, oh, these prayers of confession, like these guys talk about sin way too much. You know the reason why we're able to pray prayers of confession? It's because we don't fear. If our God is loving towards us, what sin do I have to keep away from him? Because that's how loving he is. And if you've ever babysat anybody, if you've ever been a, if you've ever been a parent of somebody, do you want your children coming to you, hiding their sins, pretending that they are more self-righteous uh, than, obviously more self-righteous than they could ever be? Uh, no, we want them exposing their sins. We want them acknowledging what we already know. And so in that relationship where parents are loving towards their children, where babysitters are loving towards their that they're watching over, we understand exactly what this is like. What a wonderful call we have here to plead the mercy of God for our sins, to not give us what we deserve continually, knowing that he does that. And then in his grace, giving us everything that is his in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful invitation we have to go to the one mediator, Jesus Christ, the God-man, so that we might receive eternal pardon. Here Moses is interceding upon God or to God, asking God to not judge them for this particular great sin. It's not necessarily talking about eternal salvation because we know as the book, as the Bible goes on, we know in the book of Numbers, for example, that the people just continue to sin against God and then they are judged. God knows their hearts. He knows that they have no intention of giving themselves throwing themselves at the mercy of God. But friends, once again, this passage calls us to do just that before Jesus Christ, knowing that for those who repent and believe, there is eternal salvation secured through his shed blood. In our last section, we come full circle with Moses going back up to meet God on the mountain. And we see again Moses' heart as the mediator. Here you can find this section in verse 30 all the way to the end. But Moses identifies himself with the people all the more, becoming more and more so the covenant mediator that God desires him to be. And he asks God to forgive them. And if you do not forgive them, then do it to me, he says. Do it to me what you will do to them also, because they are my people. And here again, we are pointed once again to the great one mediator, the God-man who stands between God and man the one who throws in his lot with sinners. Even though we deserve just condemnation, there is one who stands before God and happily receives our very own punishment. Where God rightly could have done to us, he receives that so that sinners would be pardoned, so that they would be free. In God's providence, God chooses not to commit himself to forgive them here. And we know why. Once again, it's because the people go on astray in the book of Numbers. But again, we see how Moses points to Jesus and Christ identifies with his people, receiving upon himself the wrath that we deserved. To conclude, you know, recidivism, regardless of what, why people might turn back to sins in terms of the earthly sins, uh, in terms of spiritual sins, thank God that there is one who continually pursues us. Time and time again, we go astray, we wander away and even reject God in the moments, certain moments in our own Christian life. But thank God, there is always someone there to come to our aid, calling us, beckoning us, even from the very word today, to rely on God's grace and mercy in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for being a merciful God. How amazing is it that you say that you will not restrain your mercy from us. Lord, we thank you that your mercy is persistent. We thank you that your mercy and your grace is indeed ravenous. We thank you, Lord, that you are determined to save your people and that you act according to your promises, despite how sinful we are. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, you grant us, even though we don't deserve it, you grant us full access.
to the storehouses of your heavenly blessings in Jesus Christ. You seat us in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. You protect our inheritance in Jesus Christ. You even grant us the faith and repentance that we might walk this life looking forward to a greater hope than anything this world has to offer. You even promise to shield us in your power so that we might lay hold of our inheritance. We know, Lord, that your inheritance to us, to us as sinners, does not involve cold, dry cash as if that were to fulfill us all the days into eternity, but you give us your very own Son. You give us joy in the Savior. Lord, we pray that we would plead your mercies today so that we might know this very joy in the midst of the darkest sins that we can ever experience here in this life. In your name we pray, amen.